We are in the book of Hebrews. We have been uh, kind of going along in chapter one. Now we're going to finish up chapter two as we've been looking at this incredible book that talks about Jesus Christ. And it's going to say basically over and over and over that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything. Jesus is supreme. He's incomparable. All these different ways of saying he's better. He's the best. And uh, today we're going to look at this and we're going to be looking at this great salvation we have and this great Savior we have. But it made me stop and think. You know, I wonder, I don't know if you've ever wondered this. I, I, I've watched some of this show, The Chosen, you know, and seen the guy who, who plays Jesus. And I've watched him play Jesus. And then I watched him do an interview on some news show. And I was like, why is he talking like that? He doesn't sound like Jesus anymore. What's wrong with him? You know, just be Jesus all the time, dude. Come on, you're typecast. And, and then I started thinking, well, I wonder what Jesus does, did look like. Now, we have no clue what Jesus actually looked like. But about 15 years ago, a group of uh, scientists, some forensic anthropologists, they're called, and some archaeologists got together. They have skulls. Yeah. They have skulls from that day. And they have bones from that day. And so what they did is they did some modeling. They, they, they by the, on the basis of skulls and that kind of thing, and other stuff that they were able to look into, they, they came up with what they think is the average Galileans, and because they, they were very specific about the area, the face of an average Galilean. Okay, so this isn't the face of Jesus. It's the face of an average Galilean. And it looked like that. And now I just looked at that and I thought, oh, I, I mean, I knew, I knew Jesus wasn't white with blonde hair and blue eyes like we see in some, some, some of the older movies about Jesus. But it kind of gives you an idea. This is a possibility. In other words, he isn't this. On the right is definitely not Jesus. On the left may look some like Jesus, right? And, and this is good for us to think about because we all kind of have a picture, and not a picture, but we have an idea of what Jesus was like. And a lot of times our ideas of what Jesus is like, I'm going to take it off there, there of what Jesus is like, are just shaped by our culture, shaped subtly by things that, that we, we take for granted, that we don't understand, that we don't even see. Because here's the thing that got me. Not only was that what they thought what, what average person's face looked like, the average person was five foot one, 110 pounds, the average male. And I was like, five, one, 110, I could take him. <laughs> and I, I know that sounds... Uh, it does, it does, it does not sound good that I said that about, I wasn't meaning Jesus, I just meant that guy, whoever that guy is, because that guy, yeah, yeah, but here's why that kind of got me, because I kept thinking, I think of Jesus, the one, the mighty one who calmed the waves, who stood up to the Pharisees and got in their faces, and who, who, who healed people, who taught these amazing lessons and teachings, he did miracles, I don't know what exactly I was thinking, but I wasn't thinking 51110. That's not what I was thinking. It's nothing. It's nothing like we see in movies or on TV. Because we have these subtle preconceived notions about Jesus that are influenced by us, by our culture, by the, what we're used to, what we're comfortable with. And we need to run to Scripture to see him for who he is to see him as he really is, because we are prone 
to make him out to be what we want him to be because it makes us comfortable. And so that's why we're in Hebrews now. We're in Hebrews to look at Jesus. The, the author of the book of Hebrews is going to spend 13, all these chapters, saying, look at Jesus. Don't look anywhere else. Look at Jesus. And so in chapter 1, what did we see? We looked at how awesome he was. He was magnificent. He was the creator. He sustained the, the universe. He's incomparable. He's greater than angels because he is God. And he makes, he makes a big point of that because those people he was specifically writing to had a very high regard of angels. In fact, for some of them from the Qumran sect, from the Essenes, they believed that after the Messiah came, Michael the archangel would be in charge of the world. He would be in charge. The Messiah was just an earthly ruler, but Michael was going to rule over the whole kit and caboodle, right? So they... And so, the writer of the book of Hebrews is countering that thought strongly. So he's emphasizing how awesome, how incomparable, how magnificent Jesus is. He's emphasizing that. But here's the problem when you get to the end of chapter one. The problem is, it's very easy to start thinking, so how do I relate to Jesus? He's incomparable. So that means not comparable to me. Can he understand what it is to be me? Can he understand my flaws? Can he understand my struggles? Right now, here now, 21st century, as a, as, a, uh, as a worker, as a business owner, as a mom, as a dad, as, a, as a, a student, whatever, can he understand what it is to be me and what it's like and what I struggle with and what my flaws are? So in chapter 2, what happens is he now is going to emphasize the humanity of Christ. He's, he's going to juxtapose his divinity with this majesty, with his humanity and his lowliness. And so today we're going to look at just two points about Jesus and then three conclusions that, that, that affect us personally about Jesus. So I want you to see the first point, and uh, I, I didn't even read the passage. So here we go. I'm going to read the passage, starting with verse 10 all the way through verse 18 in Hebrews chapter 2. You can follow along in your Bible, on your phone if you want to. Hebrews chapter 2, starting with verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but... Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he made it to be, he, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So we see first that Jesus is not ashamed to be our brother. It's there in verse 10. I'm not going to read this. Lead. He says, 
bringing many sons and daughters to glory. It was fitting that their God for whom, for whom and through whom, it's at the end. Why am I reading all the way down? At the end of this passage. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Okay, so here is what's going on. God, this, this, uh, this, he's kind of reviewing what God, what God did in making this salvation so great. Remember, if you were here before, just before this passage, he said, and yet we see in this earth that things are not right. We see, right? We see pain. We see sorrow. We see tragedy. We see horrible things going on. And so he's saying, we see this. We see that things are not the way they should be. They're not the way they should, should be. And so now he's going to say, say, look at this. I'm going to show you the wisdom, the justice, the love of God. This is his character. So now his plan is working. His plan is unfolding before us. And so it, said, uh, it says here where it says, um, and he should make the pioneer of their salvation. That word pioneer is the word I was talking about earlier, archagos. He's the pioneer. He, he did it. He's the first one to do it for everyone else. That brings in that whole idea. He accomplished something for us that we could not accomplish, could not get done ourselves. He's our champion. And so he is the pioneer. It all culminates in Jesus Christ. It all culminates in his suffering. And what is his goal here? He says it's to see many, many daughters, many sons brought to glory. That's what he wants to see. So Jesus, in this passage, since Jesus is the Son of God, and now we are adopted into into the family of God, he is our brother. We can say this and not gasp at the significance of it because it just slips by too easy. If you stop and think about this, because it seems, I don't know, almost a little weird. He is my brother. He is your brother, Jesus. Says, scripture says. He's our older brother. We have the same father. We're family. I desperately wanted to play the Pointer Sisters, we are family, right now, to emphasize that. But that's the point. We're family. There's something special between us, an interconnectedness between us as children of God, as followers of Jesus Christ. And we all have the same older brother, And when a family is operating correctly, the members of the family help each other, especially an older brother. I'm thankful. I have two older brothers. I'm so thankful for them. My brother Steve first introduced me to Jesus. And my brother Dan took me under his wing and helped me into the ministry. Made incredible impact on my life between those two guys. And we have an older brother who loves us so much, he's willing to die for us. He's willing to die for us. We need to grasp this in order to live through the tough times. We have to get a handle on this. It can fly by. We can say it so easily and not understand the significance. You have a brother who willingly died for you. He died for you. That's an amazing thing. Think what would happen He saved you. Think what would happen if someone saved your life. Um, I had that happen one time. um, I was at a camp. I was at a camp. I was helping run a camp in Florida. And uh, this camp 
was the mother of all camps. I mean, they had, you could, you could learn karate, singing. They had different ministries. They had uh, puppets and, and you could learn, you could learn barefoot water skiing. You could learn uh, surfing. There was a surf camp, a water skiing camp. It was all of these things. So they had boats and they had trucks that transported people to the beach for surf camp. And it was just just like, you go there and you go, this is the most incredible camp I've ever been to in my life, right? And so one day I, I was, I did karate instruction. And one day one of the guys said, hey, come out on a boat with us. Come out on one of our boats with us. And they have the really nice ski boats with the big V8 engine and, and you know, built inboard so that it's clear for the skiers and everything. And so he took two people barefoot skiing and he had us, the, the guy, he had us sitting in the boat. And what he asked me, will you keep an eye on them? Keep it, just, just keep an eye. He had as a mirror, but he says, just because I'm also looking forward. And so I, I got up on the side of the boat and I put my hand on the windshield, you know what I'm saying? So I'm on the left side of the boat with my arm on the windshield and I'm watching these two barefoot skiers. And we're in this lake. And if you've ever been down to Southern Florida, there's all these lakes connected by canals. And so he just starts going down a canal. And I'm thinking, this is a little tight. You know, it's only two boat lengths wide. And another boat starts coming. And so he's doing hand signals like this, whatever, to the skiers, and they're all thumbs up. And, and I'm like, I wish I knew the hand signal language. And he did, if you, if, if, and if you've ever been involved, they do this all the time. He just suddenly threw the boat sideways like a giant brake. And then when the boat gets sideways hard enough, you hit the gas so the boat stands on its tail and the boat can turn inside the, the length of the boat. It can turn in like eight feet when you do that. However, if you're sitting on the side of the boat with your hand on the windshield and you don't know the hand signals, you have no clue that he is about to turn the boat sideways. And physics takes charge. And I went straight over. And I was just like, hey, like that. And uh, the next thing I heard was him hitting the gas on the engines right by my head. And a guy, a friend of mine named Andy, in the boat, dove across the boat, grabbed me, grabbed my, my shorts. Thank goodness they were tight. And it was, it was, it was the 80s. And, uh, <clears throat> and jerked me up out of the water. Jerked me up, partway up, and I was like, Ooh, you know, like that. And... Uh, I looked at him and I said, dude, you saved my life. I mean, I, I could hear the, the, the propellers right by my head. And he looked at me and he goes, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. And I was like, okay, fine, thanks. You know, don't, don't get humble on me. Um, and, and, you know, then everything broke loose. The, the, the driver was apologizing and, and the other boat stopped and the other boat was yelling at them, you almost killed that dude. You got it. Do you know what you're doing? Are you you even, you know, blah, 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 like this. And I was like, sorry, sorry, sorry. Because I felt like it was my fault for not knowing sign language. But, but Andy, Andy, it's funny. I have Andy's name and phone number in my desk right now. It's been, it's been a long time. Um, 40 years, 30 years, 35. And if Andy calls me and says, Bob, and I told him this, I need something. I'm on it. I'm on it. He saved my life. 
I saw my life go then. I, I knew I thought I was dead. And if Andy calls me, I will go right now. I'll go. Whatever, wherever, wherever he wants. He lives in Baltimore, Maryland. I'll come up. I'll get him. I'll, I'll get him. I'll do whatever I can. Um, because he saved my life. It's, it's, it's an incredible thought. Jesus did that for you and for me. Except he didn't just say, he died for us. He took it all on himself. And so we have this older brother who loves us, who loves us so much. And so in verse 11, it says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Same family. They're related. They're related. So that Jesus is my brother. He's my savior. He's my champion. He did it for me. And I didn't, I didn't add anything to it. And then the next line. So, because they're family, because we're family, because he died for us and made us family, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. This is a powerful idea, especially in that culture. Okay, understand in that culture, that's a shame and honor culture. That's a culture where the, the community was key. Saving face was huge. I mean, these things can be important to us now, but not on the level that it is there or in, in many Asian countries where it's, it's very much a shame and honor culture. To be, to be a problem child, to be a person who causes problems, someone who's not honest, maybe someone who's not a hard worker, was to shame your whole family. Your whole family was brought in on that. That's why, you know, if you read thinking that, read the parable of the prodigal son. It's full of cues that we're dealing with a shame and honor culture. It's full of things dealing with a shame and honor culture. From the very beginning, the son asked for his inheritance. What is he saying when he says that? He's saying, I wish you were dead. Because that's when you get an inheritance. So the son goes to his father. It's like he's basically saying, it's never been good between us. I'm better off if you're dead. So how about this? Give me my inheritance and let me just get out of here. And the father says, okay. Is that amazing or what? I love my kids. But if one of them tried to pull that stunt on me, what? What? That's crazy talk. I say, listen, buddy, you're on your own. I don't even remember your name. So, so here we have this. And then, you know, if you think about it, there are things in that culture that they would do to a son who shamed his father. There were, they were ways that they dealt with that. And the father is, the son goes away, the father knows he's coming back, and he's looking for him. Why? To save him from the town, from what would happen to him if they get a hold of him first. He sees him, and what does he do? He runs to his son. And I want to tell you, there's so many places in Hebrew literature uh, written by rabbis about how it is shameful for an older man, an older person, man or woman, to run. Why? Because to run, you know, they had to gird up. You've ever read that, uh, like sometimes in Scripture, will say they had to gird up their loins. What does that mean? They pulled up the clothing and they tied it so they could run free. 
You know, their legs weren't constrained by all that stuff. And for a man or a woman to show their legs, older man or older woman to show their legs was incredibly shameful, probably because they were so ugly. That's probably, I'm, I'm learning that now, right? I'm seeing my kids when we go to the beach go, oh, uh, like that, all right? So, so what happened? He ran, he ran, he shamed himself for the sake of his shameful son. This is our God. This is our God. He honors us. He's not ashamed of us. He rescues us from shame. And shame can be a powerful thing sometimes, you know. Speaking of my wonderful older brothers, one time um, when my oldest brother was going on a double date to see a baseball game in, in D.C. back when they were the Washington senators and Texas stole them from us. Um, something had come up with our family and my mom and dad told him, you, you, you got to take Bobby, this nine-year-old punk. You got to take Bobby on your double date. And of course, you know, he's such a good guy. He was thrilled. He was thrilled. No, right? No. So, he goes and gets his, his, his buddy with, and, the, and the two girls, and he comes back to pick me up because he wanted to be in the car the least amount of time he could possibly be with me. And he comes in, he says, okay, let's go. And he says, look at me, look at me. And he grabbed my arm, and he says, don't say anything. Just sit still. Act like you're not there. And so we go, and he, he, I'm sitting in the front seat of the car with uh, him and his girlfriend, and I'm just talking away. <laughs> talking away. Her name was Barbara. Barbara, have you ever been to a baseball game? I haven't either. I'm so excited. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. You know, blah, 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 yeah, yeah. you know, a nine-year-old. And which, and to a nine-year-old going out on a double date with two teenage couples is like, this is the coolest thing ever. I'm riding in a car, you know, this is pretty cool. And so we got to the baseball game. We get out and my brother says, come here. Hmm. Shut up. Do you understand me? Don't say a word and quit. You're not gonna, I'm not buying you anything. But I knew my parents had given him money to buy me things. So I said, Dan, can I get some popcorn and a soda? And his girlfriend's like, yeah, give him, give, come on, be nice to your little brother. And it was just a whole night of looks and, and, and like daggers from my brother. Why? Because he was ashamed of me. And I don't blame him. Don't blame him at all, right? He was ashamed of me. Jesus is not ashamed of you at all. I think sometimes for some of us, we kind of feel like, you know, God, thank you for my salvation. Thank you that you love me so much. But we kind of feel like Jesus is kind of like, yeah, I have to love you because you're ticking me off, right? You know, you, you, this is, you're a pain in the butt. You know, it's like we feel like he's putting up with us. Can I tell you he's not putting up with you? He loves you. He is not ashamed. There's not an inkling of shame when he talks about you, when he thinks about you, when he watches you. That's a powerful idea. You know, and this is what I love about Jesus. You know, all, we, all you got to do is look at, look at Matthew chapter 2, his genealogy. And, and we've talked about this before, but, you know, we, we have resumes. That's where we put our best foot forward. I've talked about this before. You know, I put together my resume. And I, I said, I went to this college, 
and I went to this college, and I, and I went graduate school here. I, I actually went to another graduate school, but I flunked out in the first semester. I just couldn't handle it. I don't bring that up on my resume. It's not important, right? It's, it's not real important. Right now, the leaders of this church are going, what? What? Yeah, but I've admitted this before. So we, what do we do with a resume? We put our best foot forward. We leave out the stuff that's not that great, and we put in the really good stuff that makes us look good, right? That's what genealogies were for them, in a sense. Genealogies were a way of saying, this is who I am. Look at who I come from. And in a shame and honor culture, that's huge. Who is my, who are my, who, who are the generations before me? Look at all these important people that I come from. Therefore, I'm important. That's also how they establish how you own land. They so much stuff is wrapped up in genealogies that, that we, you know, we don't even get it. Look at Jesus' genealogy. If you ever want to go read it, it's, it's good for insomnia. Read, read a genealogy, because in Jesus' genealogy, you start seeing things that aren't supposed to be there, all right? It's radical. Jesus, don't hate the messenger. In that culture, women were held very, very low esteem. They were not equal. There was nothing, anything even close to that. And you will not find genealogies of ancient uh, Jews that have women in their genealogy. You won't find it. You will in Jesus's. You'll find four women in Jesus's. And this is what's interesting to me. You talk about putting your good foot forward. Three of them are foreigners. They're not even Jews. And he put them in there. They're not wholesome people. One impersonated a prostitute. One was a prostitute. One that we just talked about that, we just studied the book of Ruth, was a Moabite that people all looked down upon because they were such evil people, right? And, and so he puts people in there that no one would put in. And remember, too, the people he puts in there that are the men, some of them did some pretty terrible stuff, too. This is like a list. Some of them are characters who, you know, Abraham's never going to win Husband of the Year awards, right, for what he did to his wife. And uh, David is never going to win Best Friend of the Year award for what he did to his best friend. So, you know, all of these things are in there. Matthew 2 is not a who's who of all the best people. Matthew 2 is a who's who of the best, the worst, and everyone in between. And that's what Jesus wanted. That's what he wants. Why? Because he's not ashamed. He's not ashamed. People can look at that, and in, a, and in the ancient world, they did. They, they looked at it and said, there's women in the genealogy. This is terrible. And Jesus is like, why? I'm not ashamed of Rahab the harlot. I'm not ashamed of her. She's my sister. I'm not ashamed of her. You know, I'm not ashamed of this person. I'm not ashamed of that person. And that's what he says about you. At your worst if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've made that commitment to him. At your worst, he says, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed of what I did for you. I don't regret a minute of it. Now he gives uh, three Old Testament quotes. He's kind of, remember we talked about this, he's kind of, uh, uh, it's like a court case and he's proving his point. In the first quote he says, in verse 12, he says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. Okay, this is from Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22 all of them, all the Hebrews would know. 
That's a very important psalm. It's a powerful psalm. It has some really important things in it. And, and part of what makes it very important is Jesus quoted it on the cross. You remember he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes Psalm 22 while he's on the cross. So Psalm 22 is huge. And the context there, it helps us to understand this. It starts with pains. If you read it, and I encourage you to read it, you'll see Jesus all over it. It starts with pain, and it ends with praise. It ends with the kingdom and praise. And in verse 12, we're getting towards the end. He says, I'm going to declare your name. He's already said, why did you forsake me? And now he's saying, I'm going to declare your name. And this is the idea of declaring God's character. Name is what that meant to them, his greatness. It's like singing praises. But it says in the assembly, that is, as people gather together, I'm going to declare your name. I'm going to praise you, just like what we did. The first part of our service, David would go, oh, yeah, I know how this works. Been there, done that, wrote some of that, right? He would, and he's calling us to enter into praising God as brothers and sisters of each other and brothers and sisters of Christ together were to do that. So he says, he's saying, look, this is Jesus as our brother. This is Jesus as our part of our family. He's declaring your name to his brothers and sisters. The next verse is from Isaiah. And again, I will put my trust in him. Isaiah at that point was struggling and realized he's got to put all his trust in God. And Jesus is saying, that's me. And then on the, uh, and, and once again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. This is another way where Jesus is saying, you're my family. You're like my brothers and sisters and you're like my kids all at the same time. I love you. I love you. And so he's saying, this, this is who, I will put my trust in him. And I think what's interesting here, when you think about I will put my trust in him, I, I think about with Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane where he says, Father, if there's any other way, is there any other way than the cross? I'd like something different. Is there any other way? And there is no other way. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. I will put my trust in him. He's saying that there, emphasizing that he can relate to our troubles because he went through them again. All right. So that was, Jesus is not ashamed to be our brother. And now I want you to see that Jesus is fully human. And as we go there, I I want you to understand part of what is is going on as he writes this, kind of with what we said before, what we'll say even more in the next couple chapters, is the Hebrew Christians at that time in the early church, there were some struggles as they dealt with Gentile Christians because they'd been brought up all their life to believe that Gentiles were unclean. They were wrong. They were bad people. You don't associate with them. You don't eat with them. You don't talk to them unless you have to for business or something like that, but you don't talk to them. You don't eat. You never eat with them because they're unclean. And as as they touch food, the food becomes unclean. Now you've ruined the whole meal. See, and so they've been brought up with this their whole lives. And now suddenly these these Gentiles are becoming Christians and they're coming to church and and they're like, we're brothers. And the Hebrew Christians are like, I don't know if you're my brother. Not sure if I'm ready to make that step. So they would look down upon them. They would say, they don't talk like us. They're so coarse. They don't dress like us. They're so immodest. Some of them are a different race than us. Their customs are so different. See, customs was what united Jews all over the world. Jews knew wherever they were in the world, if they found a synagogue, they knew what was going to happen. They knew how it worked. 
It's almost like church. You know, you can go to almost any church and you kind of know how things are going to go, right? There's going to be some singing. Somebody's going to get up and bore you to death with talking. And there's going to be some place where you can thankfully stash your kids and get a little time away from them, right? It's just going to be that way. That's the way it works. And so for them, they're like, they don't do the customs we do. And that's how we knew who was in and who was out. That's how we, we knew who was good and who was bad. In fact, that's still a problem today with Christians. We can run into that. But as we look at Jesus being fully human, he said, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For, sh- for surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. So interesting thought here. The key is he had to become fully human, it said. He became fully human. He's not partly human. He's fully human. I find a lot of times that non-Christians have trouble believing in the divinity, that Jesus is God. And Christians often struggle with the humanity, that Jesus is a, is a, is a human being. We believe that he is human, and we also believe that he is divine. So what, how do people deal with that? Oh, I find some people I talk to, they think that, and I understand where this comes from, they think that Jesus has this like little div- divinity switch that he can flip whenever he needs it, right? Like Power Rangers. It's morphin' time. And suddenly, regular teenagers become super, you know, superheroes. And people think, ah, that's kind of like Jesus. When he's in a tough situation, or maybe he needs a miracle, he just flips the switch, goes into God mode, and boom, things happen right? So that's a way of kind of lessening his humanity. People have tried to figure that out. They come up with ideas. Oftentimes they're heresy, but we can't explain it. I can't explain it, but I can tell you this. Scripture makes it clear. He is fully human, and he is fully God. Uh, Philippians 2, we talked about this last week, where he emptied himself. He gave up his status and his rights and his privilege. He decided not to cling to divine power, but to submit to the limitations of humanity. And he shared us in our humanity. How much? All the way, all the way to death he died. All the way to death, and he died. And the only way to break the power of death was by a human death. And the only way a human could do that is if that human was God. So that he could free us from the ultimate power, death and the fear of it. And Jesus came for us. He didn't come for angels. He came for us. He had to be human, and he was. Scripture tells us this in so many different ways. In John 4, he got tired. He was worn out, physically tired, like a human being. He gets thirsty, like a human being. He gets hungry. He becomes weak. Emotionally, he's a man of sorrow and grief, we're told. He deals with some incredibly difficult things. He can be joyful at times. He weeps at times. He's troubled sometimes emotionally. He's angry. He has compassion for those who are in pain. He's loving. Luke 2.52 says he grew in stature and wisdom. Jesus, you know, think about that. Jesus had to learn how to walk. Is that crazy? I don't know. It's weird. He had to learn how to talk. He didn't come from the womb and say, thanks, Mom. Good job. High five. Let's get to work. He didn't do that. And now, as soon as I say that, I feel a little bad. That seems irreverent to say about Jesus. But that just proves my point. I'm saying something that is would be a totally human thing as compared to something that's not human, and the human thing sounds weird. 
I don't want to subtly minimize the humanity of Jesus. He took on all our humanity. Jesus had to be potty trained. And it's, we have to, we, when we grab, we see he's a human being. He went through everything we went through. I always wonder if they use the M&M method. That's what we use with our kids. And it really worked well when we were potty training our kids. He had to learn things. He, he's fully God. He's fully human. And as a prophet, a priest, and a king, he exercises that kind of authority. In verses 17 and 18, for this reason, we had to be made like them. He had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, and he's able to help those who are being tempted. This is important. He's merciful and he's faithful. Faithful means he knows there has to be a judgment. Merciful means there's going to be grace involved in that too, so that both can take effect. Faithful means sin has to be dealt with. And merciful means that God will show his incredible grace to us. He showed that in the Old Testament. He would work with them. You guys know a lot, a lot of you heard this. We talk about this sometimes. God make a pit, made a picture for his people to understand how that works. Once a year, they'd bring up two animals. And one animal would go in and, and, and would be slain. And the blood of that animal would be taken to the mercy seat and sprinkled on the mercy seat for God's mercy to his people because of their sins. And the other animal, they would pull out of the temple and they would get in front of all the people and the people would lie in the road and they, the high priest would come and he would put his hand on the head of that animal and he would confess the sins of the people for the whole year on that animal. And I mean, they, it, they weren't thinking this was just symbolic. They're like, yes, the sins for the whole year are going on that goat. It's called a scapegoat. That goat. And then, then, then they would hire, we know from uh, a couple places in the Torah, they would hire a Gentile to lead that goat out into the wilderness, get far enough out, you let the goat go, and the goat will, will die out in the wilderness. And they, there goes our sins. There goes our sins. And they started worrying, though. They started worrying, what if, what if you, know, you know how these Gentiles are? You can't trust them. What if he just gets around the corner and lets the goat go and says, nobody will know. Goats all look alike, right? Nobody will know. And he says, and then we'll wake up in the next morning and there'll be this nuclear goat in our backyard with the sins of everybody for a year on this goat. If that goat explodes, we're all dead, right? So what they did was they told the Gentile, take the goat to a cliff and say, good luck, like that. So we know for sure it's dead. We know for sure it's dead. So what's happening there? There's a picture of how sins are dealt with. There's this understanding. There is a penalty for sin. This lamb that was slain, the blood that was sprinkled on the, on the altar, there, and, and the sins, they have to be taken care of. So they're taken out into the wilderness and disappeared. That, that's all the sins for a year. Here's the problem. It's only a year. Five minutes after the goat goes, people start sinning. And the, it starts building up for the next year. And so what's going on here? Jesus is the lamb that was slain for the sins of the whole world once for all. Had to have a perfect man to be able to take care of those sins for good. God told his people, this is a temporary remedy. The final remedy is coming. The final remedy is coming. It's Jesus. 
And Jesus came and he reconciled God's mercy, his love, his grace with his judgment. What does that mean to us then as we look at this passage? Three quick things. Number one, we don't have to be slaves to fear. There's no more fear. Now, we all fear things at some level, isolation, failure, feeling worthless. There's all kinds of things that we can fear. But the ultimate, the greatest fear is the fear of death because we all face it. Nobody gets exempt from that. But Jesus defeated death. And so now we're freed from that. And all other fears pale in comparison with that. You know, in Galatians chapter four, he tells them, he says, because of what God's done, you are no longer a slave. You're God's child. And because you're God's child, you've been adopted and you've been made an heir. You're in the family. So there's no more fear. Second thing is, your sins are completely forgiven. And we're going to explore this more uh, as we continue in this book. But the writer is showing them, this isn't a scapegoat situation. This is for good. It's like a scapegoat, but it lasts forever. And so this high priest who Jesus, he was the, he was the high priest making the offering, and he was the offering. He makes the atonement. He makes the sacrifice. He satisfies the righteous demand and cleanses us from sin. When you accept Jesus as your Savior, you're accepting him as the sacrifice for your sins, and that they are forgiven, past, present, and future. That's an incredible blessing for us. The third thing is, Jesus, he knows your weaknesses and your temptations. In verse 18, it says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He feels them, and he was victorious. He won. He was our champion. In Hebrews 4.15, this is another one we're going to look at. It says, for we do not have a high priest. Oh, wait, I think I put it in there. There we go. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He knows what you're going through. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're exhausted. Maybe there's trials, there's temptations. You feel alone. You have that feeling, I don't know what happens to me, no one understands. But there is one who says, who comes alongside you and says, oh, I get it, I understand. You're not alone, I get you. I've been there, I've done that, and I won the battle. And that's Jesus, because he knows. He knows loss, he knows criticism, he knows abandonment, he knows physical pain, he knows searing emotional and spiritual pain, he knows, he knows what it is to be shamed. And he sits with you. He sits next to you and he says, I know. I get it. I get you. I get you. He helps with our weaknesses because he's fully human. So we saw that picture at the start, which was just a representation of what an average person looked like in Galilee around 30 AD. But now, as we study this, we see him for who he really is. He's a priest, but he's also the offering. He's, he's the lamb that's slain, and he's the scapegoat that all the sins go on. We're seeing all those things that show us this is the Jesus that we follow. And because of that, you can trust him. You can trust him because he loves you. He's worthy. He knows what you're going through. 
And here's the great thing, because this is the dirty little secret sometimes with counselors, you know. Um, I, I, I took counseling stuff in, in grad school, and I learned enough to know when I'm over my head. I know when I'm in too deep, and I should get to somebody who knows better. But one of the things over and over is they said you're going to face sometimes is people are going to be telling you things, and you're not going to know how to fix it. You just don't think there's any fix. And Jesus says, oh, there is. There is, because I've been tempted in the same way. I've struggled with the same things in every way, and I found where victory is. And so what do we do? Chapters one and two, it's all about fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. In Hebrews 13, it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the champion of your faith, who for the joy, that's you, set before him, endured the cross, endured the shame, so that we could be brothers and sisters with him, a part of a family that will last for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you that we could get together like this. We have the freedom to be able to gather and praise and worship and study and, and, and pray and uh, not fear, not have to worry. We pray for our brothers and sisters all over the world who gathering like this is uh, risking going to prison. And yet we see they still gather because they fix their eyes on you. Lord, help us to be like that. Help us to be found faithful. As we go through this week, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, your son. And in doing that, we can have the victory that he has. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.